Good morning, Westridge. <laughs> How many of you are ready to turn the page on 13? How many of you haven't turned the page on 1972 yet? <laughs> well, the song begs the question, what are times like these? My friend, uh, once a leader in the church, very talented person, has slowly over the years abandoned church altogether. So he's at our condo with his wife for a little pre-Christmas get-together. And I mean the first thing he does when he walks in our condo is go over to our coffee table and pick up the current copy of Chicago Magazine. And he waves it in my face, says, You read this? I said, No, I never read Chicago Magazine. I'm way too serious of a person to do that. It's just for decoration. And then he pointed to the headline on the the top of the cover. Top right-hand side. It said this. Big trouble in a local megachurch. And he proceeded to give me all the gory details. It seems like the former senior pastor of the First Baptist Church of Hammond, Indiana, is convicted of taking a 17-year-old girl he was counseling. Bad idea to begin with. Across state lines to have sex with her. But wait, it gets worse. The article implies that this is not an aberration in the church or its school, Howells Anderson College. According to researchers, there are more than a dozen men with ties to the church and the school have been racking up a string of arrests and civil lawsuits. Just the kind of story he needed to fortify his newly formed stance toward the church. But he's not the only one. Many are saying that Times like these, in religious America, it's not a pretty picture. In a New York Times op-ed last week, an evangelical pastor wrote, studies show that a majority of young people raised as evangelicals are quitting church, and often the faith entirely and attendance across evangelical churches is gradually declining. In fact, about a third of 20-somethings list their religious affiliation as none. They're called the nuns. Not with the funny hat and clothes, but like, no, none, not at all. And now this much we know. There are more options than ever. It's a pluralistic society. Islam is growing. The nuns, N-O-N-E-S, are growing... More and more people are going to fewer and fewer churches. Somehow, it seems to me, lost in the translation is what appears to be a rather simple question. What does it mean to be a Christian in 2013? I mean, right here, right now. Maybe before we turn the page, from 12 to 13, this is as good a time as any to take stock and ask ourselves that question before we hurtle headlong into another year. I've got increasing number of friends. Maybe you do too. 
they're bright, they're generous, they're spiritual, they're serving, they're talented, they're totally disconnected from any church. And they ask the question, in times like these, why should I be a part of any church? Trite and cliche answers don't work. I've tried them all. Fellowship, we got lots of friends. And quite frankly, they're more loyal than the ones we found in church. We're not lonely. Service, we serve other people. And quite frankly, the return on our investment is much higher than the typical overhead that a church runs. After all, we're not putting on a big show every week. Teaching, we read, we continue to learn. We don't have to physically be in the same place with technology today to interact with other people, to continue to be a lifelong learner. They've no axe to grind. They're not running from anything. They don't see the point. And probably worst of all, they don't see Jesus most churches, in most churches where they go. And maybe even worser, I'm unaccustomed to public speaking. Give me a break. I see their point. Sometimes it is hard to see Jesus. His compelling life, his insightful teaching. He's covered up. He's buried in the big box religious show that is so much of religious America today. Can you imagine a new store opening up with this as its only signage? Open for business. What business, you may ask? Business is the reply. Well, what might I expect in the way of service? Good service is the reply. Uh, Well, what will you offer? Business. We're open for business. We're open for business. We're just not sure what business we're in. That's the times like these in religious America. Church is the sign on the outside. But what business is the church in? What services might you expect? What value is added? C.S. Lewis writes in his famous novel, Screwtape Letters, about a, a junior demon getting instructions from his superior. The senior demon, whose name is Screwtape, tells Wormwood, the junior demon, this. The church is the fertile field. If you can just keep them bickering over details and structure and organization and money and property and personal hurts, over misunderstandings, if you can just do that, but one thing you must prevent, don't ever let them look up and see the banners flying. For if they see the banners flying, you will have lost them forever. William Barker tells a story about a small town in Tennessee that had a place of worship with a sign in front that read, Left Foot Church. And a student wondered about that name oftentimes. And so finally he stopped in to find out the real story. It seems that there had been a split in the local congregation which practiced foot washing. The break wasn't about whether or not they should wash feet, but it was about whether you should wash the right foot first or the left foot first. 
And so the group that insisted it should be the left foot withdrew and started its own church. And we may say, how petty. But chances are, if you've been around the church very long, you've heard of similar stories. Maybe you've experienced similar stories. I wish the Chicago Magazine article, I wish it was an aberration. But you and I know it's not. The times in which we live demand a simple answer to a poignant question. What is the business of the church? I'll turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. That chapter shows Jesus touching more people in that one chapter than perhaps any other chapter in all the Gospels. When we look at that chapter, we'll find out our business. And it's this. Touching people the way Jesus did. Now, I've not been a part of a church that does that perfectly. But I will tell you here at Westridge, that's our goal. Maybe you're like me and you're into outcomes. Any of you outcome, bottom line people out there with me? Okay. I'm feeling worser all of a sudden. I don't care much for meetings about meetings. Spare me all your preening palaver. Just tell me the outcome. Where are you going? And will you know when you've arrived? So, notice the outcomes when Jesus moved through a day as described in Matthew chapter 9. And let's make these our business outcomes as well. Outcome number one from Matthew chapter 9. Lives are changed. They're changed, and I might add, in times like these, for the better. Because there are plenty of churches out there that will change your life all right. I'm talking about lives that are healthier, that are more alive, that are more responsible, free from listening to WITFM. What's in it for me? Fears that are dissolved. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus touches and changes the lives of a paralyzed man, an extortioner, a man whose daughter had died, a woman with a chronic health problem, a blind man, and a demon-possessed man. All in a day's work. And all these lives were altered because of a touch from Jesus. And we also notice that a life is not touched without also touching others. It's like throwing a rock in a pond and watching the ripples move out from the center. And as a result of having been touched by Jesus... We see the outcomes. People praise God. Tax collectors and sinners ate with Him. News spread. Crowds were amazed. Cities were changed. The church, this church, is in the business of healing broken lives, restoring relationships. That's embodying the radical love of God. That's what that is. Because all of us come to Jesus paralyzed or blind or bound in some area of our life, and Jesus changes that 
That's our business. The church is the place where we meet in community as fellow sojourners on the journey. Not a religious tribunal to pronounce judgments on all those outside the castle walls of the church. Outcome number two. Opposition arises. Now anytime anyone or anything changes, guess what? There will be those who oppose it. In our narrative, Matthew's Gospel chapter 9, even though the change that Jesus brought was positive, there were those who didn't want the status quo changed. You mean they actually wanted to keep people paralyzed and broken? Yes. Newsflash. They're still alive in the 21st century. They liked the oppression that others suffered. Some of them stood to profit from it. Can you imagine that? There are those who want to stay bound in fear and self-absorption. And so, they accuse Jesus. They accuse Jesus of blaspheming, of eating with sinners. They laughed at him, and they accused him of being demon-possessed. If we touch people the way Jesus did, then we'll encounter opposition the way Jesus did. Even if the change is toward wholeness and health, change is still change, and change is frequently feared and opposed. And so the personal question maybe we should ask ourselves before the page is turned for 2013. Will I let fear prevent me from doing what I know will bring health and maturity in my life? Or will I move through that fear, not waiting for the absence of it before I act? This much I know. If we're encountering Jesus and touching people the way he did, there will be opposition. Outcome number three. Faith is increased. As Jesus touches people, their faith is increased. And... Call me silly, but I think the church at the very least should be the kind of place that promotes the kind of culture where faith grows, not the place where faith is lost or diminished. Church is the kind of place that when you leave, you're enthused to tackle the world of the seen with your faith in the world that is unseen because you know there's a deeper reality than what the eye can see. Being around People of faith creates more faith. That's one reason we need to get together. And I love being around people like that, but even more, I want to be a person like that. Faith, not argumentative authoritarianism, is the outcome of touching people the way Jesus did. Outcome number four. Compassion is given. Now here's a piece of the text from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. Too long to read it all in my allotted time frame today, but this, I think, is the summary. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, 
he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Now, watch the sequencing here. Jesus went to the people. He saw the crowds. He had compassion. Notice that order. He went. He saw. He had compassion. When you don't encounter those in need, you don't see the need. And if you don't see the need, you don't have compassion. This is important to understand because you don't get the motivation to go because you have compassion. You go because Jesus went. And we're in the business of touching people the way Jesus did. You go because He cares, and that's the character you want to have. You go to receive compassion, not because of compassion. That's why it's so dangerous to shield ourselves from the poor and the disadvantaged. It shrivels up our compassionate capacity, and that makes me a small person. The last outcome. Insight is deepened. People who get involved in this kind of journey of of changed lives, of new opposition, of increased faith, of active compassion, find that they have a vantage point that others don't have. They become a peculiar people. Those involved in a community of faith sense what Jesus did after an exhausting day of touching people, and they sense this. There just aren't enough workers. You ever felt that? There just aren't enough. The need is so great, and there are so few who really get it. They're not enough of the right kind of workers. And so for the church that wants to touch people the way Jesus did, the most important statistic is the one that reveals how many of its people are actually involved touching people the way Jesus did. The important statistic is not how many show up on Sunday morning, not the size of the annual budget, not the total amount of square footage under roof. Do I have to tell you we need a thousand authentic encounters for Jesus to counteract every one Chicago magazine that talks about megachurch pastor predators? Since so much has been lost in translation. Let me, let me make it very simple for you. The essential Jesus touch is compassion. It's mercy. It's merciful. A contemporary theologian described mercy as entering into the chaos of another. We meet every week to celebrate the mercy of God who entered the chaos of our world in the person of Jesus, mercy incarnate. Now, I I have to be honest and tell you, it's not easy for me to be with people who suffer, to enter into the chaos of another. And yet every time I do, it ends up being a gift to me, better than a wrapped and ribbon package, because I'm pulled out of myself 
to be love's presence to someone else even as they are love's presence to me. And we never touch someone the way Jesus did without that touch being passed along. And that authentic touch from Jesus is never lost in translation. I'm guessing there will be people all around us the next 12 months who need the compassionate, life-changing touch of Jesus. And guess what? We're the ones to provide it. I'm the one to provide it. This church is the one to provide it. And when we do, get ready for changed lives, for new opposition, for increased faith, for the gift of compassion, for deepened insight. This next year, look up. See the banners flying. Touch someone the way Jesus did.